Well, I want to welcome you all to the second Sunday of Advent. Advent is a lot of things, but it is primarily considered a season of what we call last things. Ironically, uh, it's called last things because this is really the beginning of the Christian year, of a whole new season and a whole new year for us as we follow the Christian calendar, the Christian year. But traditionally, the four Sundays of Advent weren't hope and peace and love and joy like we know them today. Uh, these are all really nice sounding things. Hope and joy and peace and love. Traditionally, the four Sundays of Advent were death, judgment, hell, and heaven. Merry Christmas. <laughs> But again, Advent is a season of last things, this final kind of moment, because we understand that Christmas is this kind of apocalyptic moment. Christmas is this time when everything that we've known and everything that we understand about how the world works, how the world is ordered, is flipped upside down. And so Advent, in preparation for that, is this season of final Things, this season of last things, as our friend Fleming Rutledge puts it. But Advent is also a season of waiting. We talk about this a lot. And this isn't the passive, do-nothing kind of waiting. Uh, for those of you who are familiar with that Dr. Seuss book, Oh, the Places You Will Go, uh, one of the places that Dr. Seuss mentions you might go is the waiting place. And he talks about how it is a worthless place because everybody is just waiting for something to happen to them. But Advent isn't that kind of waiting. It isn't a passive, do-nothing kind of waiting, but it's a time for us to do what we can do while we trust and hope and wait for God to do what only God can do. So as we work, we trust that God is already working. When I was a kid, we had this Advent calendar, and I didn't know it at the time, we didn't call it an advent calendar. It was just like the way that we counted down to Christmas, right? And it was this big Christmas tree with these little Velcro people that sat in these pockets. And every morning, my sister and I would race and fight over who got to put the next person on the tree as we got closer and closer to Christmas. But I have yet to find an advent calendar with the likes of John the Baptist. To have maybe this, this space that you open up, this window like so many advent calendars have, and you open this little door, this little window, and out pops this big, hairy, bug-eating desert dweller who's just yelling in your face, repent! <laughs> we don't make these kind of advent calendars, and probably for good reason. I would love to purchase one if you're interested, if you're in the market, if you think that this is profitable, let's talk. But we just don't see John the Baptist all that much in our preparation for Christmas. But what we discover this week and next week is that there is no way through the season of Advent, there is no way to get to Christmas without journeying with this character of John the Baptist. 
this Sunday and next, he is the centerpiece. He's the focus of this whole narrative. But as we've already mentioned, he's a kind of cartoon. We can't really nail down John the Baptist. I mean, when we consider some of the characters of the New Testament, we think about people like Peter. Or we think about people like, uh, like Paul. And in Peter, we have this, like, he's stubborn-headed. He's, you know, a human being. He doesn't always get it right. He's relatable, right? We can understand this person of Peter. Or you think about Paul, who just lives this kind of broken, open, poured-out life for humanity, that he uh, has this conviction of working out the implications of the resurrection in these communities. And we can say, yes, so much about Paul we relate with, right? But John the Baptist is just, he's just out there. And he seems to be just so out of sync. He's this person who lives in the wilderness. He lives away from any sense of normalcy. He's eating locusts. He's wearing animal skins. He's got leather stuff tied around him. And again, he is a character just not out of sync with his own time. And not just with our time, but with all time. Like there is no space where John the Baptist easily fits into society. But John isn't just a foreign figure to us. I think we still don't know what to do with him exactly, but there are some things that he gets right, and I think that there are some things that John the Baptist gets quite wrong, or at least we have misunderstood him in some certain ways. First, John's message of prepare the way of the Lord has this kind of undertone in it that God needs us, that God's coming is only made possible by the work we do preparing the way, which is another way of saying God needs our activity in order to work in the world. But God suffers no needs. This isn't what we understand to be true about God. And so when we hear these words from John, that I am the voice of the one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, we need to remember that God does not need us to prepare a way, but that the Lord prepares his own way. That our preparation really begins the process of God doing what only God can do. It's a way of opening up our lives and opening up space in the lives of others for God to come, prepare his own way, and then engage with that space. And the prophet Isaiah, whom John is quoting when he announces prepare the way, the very next line from Isaiah says that every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill will be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places plain. This is what it looks like when God prepares his own way. We see valleys are lifted up and mountains are brought low. The curvy roads are made straight, that everything is made, as the text tells us, plain. When I was a kid, there was a road down the street from us and it had this series of rolling hills And for all of you who have spent like five minutes in a car, you know that when you go over these rolling hills, you get that like sinking feeling in your stomach. 
And when you're an adult, it's like, whoa. But when you're a kid, it's like, woo. And I used to beg my mom, can we go down like the big hill road? And it was a little out of the way for us. Like it wasn't the most convenient route, but it certainly was like not completely out of the way. So every once in a while, she'd appease me. And we would go down this big hilly road, right? And we'd get those weird feelings in our stomach that we thought were so fun as kids. But as an adult, and whenever I travel home, oftentimes I'll go that same way. And what I've found is that over time, they've expanded the road. They've actually cut into some of those hills. They've filled up some of those low places. And it's all for the purpose of making the traffic flow more smoothly. But it is much less fun. So there's a way that we hear a text like every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill will be brought low. And it just sounds like less fun, right? It just sounds a little less exciting. Like one of the reasons that people love to travel, especially to places like Colorado or California, is to see these mountains because it's exciting and it's different, especially when we live in a place like Tulsa. So these previous ways of traveling with high places and low places, the way that that terrain makes us feel, again, it's all very exciting and it's very fun. And these new ways are less so. But we see this idea play out in more dramatic ways. For a season, my wife and I and our daughter lived in New York City. And what you find out pretty quickly in moving and living in New York City is that the really rich, really powerful, really wealthy people live at the very top. This is the purpose of the penthouse, right? Is like, you're the big guy. You're the one on top. And everybody else lives down there. If you've ever been fortunate enough to fly first class, you know that part of the thrill of flying first class has nothing to do with some of the amenities or that little hot towel that they give you or being allowed to board first onto the airplane. Part of the thrill is knowing that right behind you, just a few feet back there, is this little curtain with this little snap on it. And what it's telling everybody else is that we have the good seats and you all have the bad seats. But what we're hearing from the prophet Isaiah, what John is announcing to the world as he says, prepare the way of the Lord, is this announcement that the future coming of the Lord is going to tear down that little curtain. For most of us, doing the work of preparing the way of the Lord, it won't be that easy and it won't be very fun because it will demand that we become aware of the ways that we derive so much of our enjoyment and our pleasure in life based on having what other people don't. This idea that we've been given access to things that other people can't get their hands on. Submitting to God's great leveling operation may sound great at the onset, but it might be painful work. But still, this is the call of Advent. The second thing where it feels like we misunderstand this character of John happens in verse 7 of Mark chapter 1 that we just read, where he says, He proclaimed, The one who is more powerful than I is coming after me. 
I am not worthy to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I think part of the way that we misread this is by hearing it as if John is suggesting there's some kind of scale of power. As if God is the one with the most power, and then some of us trickle off the edge of the scale with less and less power, all the way until the power less. This is oftentimes how we read this text, but this is important to hear that God is not the most powerful. God is all-powerful. God is the only power. He is the power of creation. He has the power of creating something out of nothing. And what we hope is not to just get a piece of that for ourselves so that now we have some power while God has the most power and others have no power. What we hope and what we hear John saying is that he's, he's got this scale of power with God at the top. And in a way that that's true, but what John needs to learn and what we need to hear is that God certainly is at the top, but God is also at the bottom and God is in the middle. That this is the reality of the incarnation, that God takes on everything that we are so that we might become everything that God is. This means that no matter if you find yourself at the top of this scale or the bottom or in the middle somewhere, what we understand as power Jesus is there too. But he is there reminding us, even in this Advent season and in this Advent hope, that no matter where you are on this scale that we've created, these scales are going to be flattened. Again, every valley will be filled. Every mountain and hill will be brought low. And that isn't about equality. That isn't about being equitable. It's about justice. There's a big difference in acting in ways that are equitable and actually acting and advocating for ways that promote justice. And I think some of us have so misconstrued this idea of power that it became the reason we were drawn to God in the first place. And think about how dangerous that is, that we felt like if God is the one with all the power, and if I can get close to God, then by sheer proximity, I too will have power in all the wrong senses of the word. And so we evangelize, and we Facebook post, and we argue over dinner tables because we think that our relationship with God means that we have the power and they don't. And so long as we have any sense of these superior, inferior dynamics in us, we'll never actually be faithful to the gospel. In God, there is no superior and inferior, which means we can't do the work that we're called to do if we think that we are inferior to God or that we are superior to others. But so many of us take on this posture of saying that I'll serve God as an inferior so long as it makes me superior to you. When I say we can't think about ourselves as inferior to God, what I mean is that John the Baptist makes this idea, has this idea that we are somehow unworthy of God. He says this pretty explicitly in the text that the one who is coming after me is more powerful, and I am not even worthy 
to stoop down and untie his sandals. I am not worthy. I think too often we act from a place of unworthiness. Like God works with us, but it's really beneath him to do so. That it's somehow a humiliation for God to work with us. And this is not the story that we see in the gospel. Remember this moment of Jesus at dinner with his disciples. And now he is insisting that he's the one who shows us how to actually wash our friend's feet. It's not that we are unworthy of God. It's that our sins are unworthy of us and God. And this is why John the Baptist gets it absolutely right in this message. Repent. This is a fun Christmas message, isn't it? (laughs) In a season like Advent, I think we are so quick to point out and acknowledge the brokenness of the world. We've said this over and over again these past couple of weeks, that not everything is as it ought to be, that we're waiting on God to come and set all things to rights. And it's easy to announce that all of those things are broken and those things are wrong, and then hope into the future that one day they're all going to get where they need to go. But Advent is a season to not just look at others' deficiencies. It's not just a season of looking at what is broken and what is wrong and what needs fixed. It's also a season of reflection. It's also a season where we have to do some of this hard work of looking at ourselves and saying, what is deficient? What is broken? How have I acted in ways that don't promote justice and equity? How have I actually derived enjoyment from the fact that not all of the mountains have been brought low and the valleys have been filled? John the Baptist, he stands as this intertestamental figure. And I mean, he, he stands between this moment of the Old Testament ending and the New Testament opening up, right? That he's come out of the wilderness into this space to proclaim the gospel. And one of the things that I was drawn to this week as I was praying into this moment was the final words of the Old Testament. How we see the Old Testament closing out with this prophet Malachi. And in the next to the last verse of this final chapter of the Old Testament, Malachi is prophesying about what he calls the great and terrible day. The great and terrible day, of course, is what we understand to be the judgment and the second coming of the Lord. And after Malachi describes this moment full of things like burning like an oven and when arrogant evildoers will be stubble, um, it's this time when everything that is wrong has been set right, really violent, really wrathful language that we find here. And then at the last possible moment, Malachi turns away from this message, from this language of wrath and flames and says, behold, I will send you the prophet, which we understand to be John the Baptist. And he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children. 
and the hearts of children to their parents so that I will not come and strike the land with a curse. Here the prophet seems to be saying that the worst thing in the world, this moment that we're going to be looking at at the end of all things on this day of judgment, is actually estrangement within our communities. It's given as a sign of the final judgment of God, the worst curse upon the human race is this kind of division. To be sure, 2020 has been a year of estrangement for a lot of us. Some of it by our own making, but most of it not so. But in every case, in every moment of this fracturing of the most basic human connection is the antithesis of what God actually intends for his people. If we want to know where God is at work or what God is doing, when reconciliation happens, this is one of the clearest of all the signs that God is at work. This is what we mean when we say that we do what we can while we trust God is doing what only God can do. In reconciliation, we acknowledge the ways that we have said or what we have done in, or participated in that have actually led to some kind of brokenness or misunderstanding or illusions of superiority and pain. Our work in a season like Advent is oftentimes just this simple act of self-awareness of how our lives are actually affecting the lives of other people. The healing that takes place from that awareness, that is God's work. We do this work of acknowledging the ways that we have participated or failed to participate, and then we leave it up to God. But too often, I think, as soon as we become aware and we wake up to this fact that we have caused hurt or pain, or missed expectations, it results in a kind of paralysis. It doesn't always feel like good news to us, like hope, like something's actually possible for the future. It actually causes fear. So we freeze up. We don't know what to do. But the gospel is clear that the only way that healing happens is when what is broken is actually brought into the light. Fleming Rutledge, who I mentioned earlier, says this. She says, wherever people are willing to come out from the paralysis caused by fear to active participation, there is the Advent spirit. Wherever there are voices in the darkness speaking out for light, there is the Advent hope. The work of God is located there. But this is hard work. It's the hard work of what becoming the people who are already ready to participate in the kingdom of God is all about. I was reading an article where this woman interviewed two psychoanalysts on this topic of marriage. And she asked them both, what is the most important ingredient to a strong marriage? 
And interestingly enough, both of these psychoanalysts from different traditions, different backgrounds, different faith expressions, they both said this, the most important ingredient is asking forgiveness. So often the number of relationships that break down between family members, including members of the church family, is a result of a refusal to repent, a refusal to see that in whatever conflict is there, that we were in some way complicit. Complicit in the pain or the disappointment, that missed expectation. Pope Francis this week wrote an op-ed on the coronavirus, and I was struck by this line where he says, if we are to come out of this crisis less selfish than when we went in, we have to let ourselves be touched by others' pain. What is he saying? He's saying that to be touched by others' pain is not just about being willing to relate to their experience in some sympathetic sense. It's about sitting with them and then also asking ourselves this hard question, have I done anything to contribute to that pain? What if we saw the people on the other side of the Facebook comment section simply as someone who is in pain, someone who is deeply hurt and angry? What if we stopped to wonder, how can we be part of that person's healing? On several occasions, I've been in uh, some meetings with a couple of bishops in the communion that we're a part of as they interview and speak with candidates for the priesthood people who are wanting to pursue uh, this process of holy orders and becoming ordained. And in so many of these meetings, we sit and we listen to these candidates talk about really painful experiences that they've had with the church. People who have hurt them or mistreated them, saw them as less than, and every time, these bishops hear these stories. Without exception, they sit and they listen and then they look these candidates in the eyes and they say these words, I'm so sorry for the pain the church has caused you. Will you forgive us? Will you forgive us? Of course, every time these candidates look at them Confused, They have no idea what to respond or what to say. And it's not as if those bishops had anything to do with that person's personal experience, but they understand that they represent the church. And so if the church has hurt a person, it grieves them. This is part of why we have this corporate moment of confession every Sunday that it's not just that we have fallen short of what God intends for us, but we have also not lived up to what the calling is in representing one another well as the body of Christ. This is why we come and in some confessions we say, Almighty God, we confess to you, to one another, and to the whole company of heaven that we have sinned through our own fault in thought and word and deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. 
this business of confession and repentance, it's not about our unworthiness. As we said earlier, it's not that we are unworthy of God, it's that our sins are unworthy of us. And so our confession, our repentance, and our work toward reconciliation for these broken relationships is really about becoming a people who can delight in God's will, who can happily go along with the plans that God has for the world. As we close, this is the work of Advent to make us people who are ready to happily go along with the plans that God has for the world, to make ready spaces for the kingdom so that when Christ does come again, there are pockets of the world that are ready to participate in that kingdom. It's interesting to me that John the Baptist, his dad is this character, Zechariah, And if you've been around sanctuary very long, as we've talked about Zechariah, he is this person who stands as a prophet to the people of God, and they're constantly saying to him, when is the kingdom going to come? When is God going to do what only God can do? And Zechariah turns the question back on them, and every time he says to them, when are you going to be people who are ready to participate in the kingdom? Because that is when the kingdom comes into the world. So this season of Advent, my hope for us as a community is that we have the courage to take a good, long look, not at others' deficiencies, not just in what is broken and what is wrong about the world, but to be honest about our own lack, the ways that we need the kingdom to come to us, the ways that we ought to repent and ask for others' forgiveness. And what I trust is that we will see God working to make us whole, not just with him, but with one another. Amen.